Thank you, Petra, and welcome everyone to Bethany Community Church. It is a joy and privilege to share with you once again this week as we continue in a series entitled Displaced, studies from the book of James. Please join me. We'll pray, and then we'll look at what God has to say to us through this very important short text that speaks about the power of our words. Father, I want to thank you that we can uh, gather scattered throughout our city, our region, our world, and listen for your voice. It's as if we're gathering each of us in various locations to be attuned to your pitch, your tone, your heart. And my prayer is we would be so filled with your life that out from our own hearts would come words and tones that are resonant with you. Teach us that, Father. Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond. Thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you know uh, that my wife and I went on sabbatical in 2014 and traveled through Europe. And one of the things that we learned uh, when we were traveling through Europe is that life is filled with choices and that it's better always to take the time and make the space to choose wisely when you come to a crossroads and you're not sure which way to go. We were backpacking through Europe, actually, going hut to hut, and many times we came to junctures. One time, uh, my wife Donna was on a bicycle, and I think a picture comes up here, and we actually weren't sure where we needed to go. And so we had to just stop, breathe, pay attention, get some revelation, and then move on. Thankfully, because we waited, we went a way that we would not have gone had we not waited. And that happened over and over and over again, where we needed to stop, breathe, pay attention, and then make the choice. And this, I think, is the meaning of what Jesus says when Jesus says, make sure you choose the narrow path rather than the broad path. Jesus is telling us that there are many, many, many ways to choose poorly, and it's easy to do so. And in fact, it's the default mode to choose poorly in our lives, and it's the same default mode uh, that happens when your house gets dirty or your teeth decay. If you do nothing, things will just fall apart, right? So by default, our choices will fail to be wise. Let me just say that again because it frames everything that we're talking about. By default, if we're indiscriminate, our choices will fail to be wise, and this applies not only to vocational choices, financial choices, sexual choices, it, it, it applies to our words. Because the words that we use in our lives determine our path. Matthew 12, 37 is where Jesus says this, by your words, you will be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. That's a powerful statement. And so the context of our discussion today is this, James is writing to people who are scattered, they're displaced, and one of the realities is that when people are displaced from one another, good communication becomes more difficult. Then, at that moment in time, it was the challenge of physical distance, which meant that at best, people could communicate via messengers, right? You'd write a note, you'd send a messenger, weeks would go by, they'd get the note, it's just words on a page, they would respond, they don't know the tone, they, they, weeks have gone by, they don't know if things have changed, 
And it made communication difficult. And I would argue that today, especially in COVID time, but also in normal time, we communicate through texts and social media and sometimes a phone call. And what's happening often in this particular environment is that friendships are being destroyed, families are being torn apart. There are lots of sociological reasons for this, but our words are tearing the fabric of our culture apart, isolating people, creating tribes, creating echo chambers. We've all heard this. We all know this, but it's a reality. Uh, and, and, and so we must see that we live in a hyper-divided time and that the source of much of the division is our words. And it's created an immense pain. Communication in this period is harder on some than others, and it's harder or easier depending on the topic about which we're speaking, and it's harder or easier depending on the depth of the prior relationship with the person with whom we're speaking. But here's the reality. When we're displaced, as we all are right now, communication is more difficult. So today's passage is a continuation of what uh, Abby spoke about last week, the power of our words. Only today what happens is uh, James spells out for us what I call the wisdom road for using words to build up rather than tear down. And he does this by unpacking three realities. Reality number one, there are always, when we speak, two paths. There's a foolish way to speak and a wise way. Second, the root will determine the fruit. In other words, which path we choose. Third, we're exhorted to choose wisely. Two paths, roots determine fruits, choose wisely. That's what we look at in our time together. And we begin with this. There are always two paths. So James speaks of this. He says that uh, our speech can either originate out from that which is earthly and demonic or wisdom from above. So uh, I speak to Petra, and now Petra has a chance to respond to what I've said. And so she now has a, she's at a crossroads, and she can either choose a response that is earthly and demonic, or she can choose the path of wisdom from above. So let's look at those two paths. What does it mean when James says that the default path that comes to us just naturally, without any discrimination, the broad road, to use Jesus' language. What, what does James mean when he says that path is earthly, unspiritual, demonic? What does that mean? Well, this is the way of everything without God's upward transformation. In other words, when the earth was created, remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we're told this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then here's this phrase. And the earth was formless and void. The Hebrew language here is tohu vabohu. And what it means is that uh, there was this sense of disorder and chaos. And then God spoke, boom, light. And light created separation, light and darkness, land and sea, day and night. And, and order began to grow out of chaos. And then when humans are created in Genesis 1.26, God says to humankind, look, I'm calling you to subdue the earth. Now, what does that mean, this calling to subdue the earth? It doesn't mean destroy the environment or view the earth as a store that we can take until our shelves are empty. But in Genesis 2, we see that subdue means to uh, tend and keep the earth in such a way that the order that God created is maintained. So let's make this practical. There's a force at work in the world 
that leads people to death and destruction. I mean, we know it just by looking at history, right? Over and over and over again, there have been, throughout the history of humankind, massive genocides. You go back and you look at the Bible, the Assyrians skinned their captives alive. And then it was the Babylonians. And then it was the Medes and the Persians. And then it was the Greeks. And then it was the Romans with their, with their uh, crosses and their crucifixions. And then when we come to modern history, over and over again, in my lifetime, Rwanda, Cambodia, a little bit earlier in history, Armenians in Turkey, Jews in Europe, over and over and over and over again. And, and, and then one of the most visible, more recent times was under the reign of Hitler, young men who were listening to Bach on Sunday and stabbing Jewish babies with their bayonets uh, during the week. Unbelievable. The darkness capable within the human heart. Let's just sit with that for a minute and understand this and confess this. We as a species, humankind, left to our own devices, we will destroy ourselves. It's history. And not only ourselves, we'll destroy other species too. This is the fundamental meaning of the, the, the wisdom that is unspiritual, earthly, and demonic, and it's the default mode. Now, here's the thing. Many of us will say, well, I don't commit genocide. That doesn't apply to me. But it's not just genocide. Because James' point is, our words are also destructive. They might not, they might not destroy the body, but they destroy the soul. They, they assault the spirit. They test the spirit. They, they, they put us in an environment where, where we believe lies, and we're filled with shame or, or rage or, or, or fear. So it's not just genocide that destroys, it's our Facebook posts that break up family relationships and friendships because we say things there or imply things there that we would never say or imply if we were with somebody face-to-face. It's our emails that, can stay, that contain stuff that only should be said in person. Uh, it's it's uh, our private chats in Zoom meetings that are actually gossip. It, it's our meeting after the meeting that's posturing for position and elevating ourselves by putting somebody else down. It's our flattery to get the promotion. It's our painting ourselves in the best possible light in order to get whatever it is that we want. It's our defensiveness. It's our, it's our victim mentality that blames before looking in the mirror. All of this is destructive. As I was growing up, the language of my childhood in my own story that stung the most was hypercriticism. I mean, I'll never forget uh, being charged in the heat of the Central California Valley by my parents to go out and weed the, the, the garden patch in the, in the front yard. And, you know, it's 105 degrees, and I'm out there doing my, doing my best, and I, I pull the weeds, and then I go, okay, I'm done. Can I go and go swimming at the pool next door in my neighbor's house? And my mom came out. And, and she goes, no, uh, you missed those weeds there. Like, there were two weeds that I missed. So get those and then go do another bed as well as kind of punishment for missing the weeds. And I was like, I remember thinking, I will never be able to do it. I can never be good enough. I can never perform well enough. And that stung. And it, and it went deep down into my soul. It was hurtful, Right? And so that's a backdrop 
And then I go away to college, and I became friends with someone whose spiritual gift, no doubt, was encouragement. And I'll never forget the time that his roommate had done something really offensive, and all of us in the dorm knew it. And so we're sitting around one day, and his roommate wasn't there. And I remember one of us asked my friend, well, what do you think? What are you going to do? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, listen, I'll tell him what I think, but I'm not going to speak poorly of him here. It wouldn't benefit anyone. And what stands out to me, retrospectively, is how much that stands out to me. Does that make sense? Like, I don't hear that very often. I'm not going to speak poorly of him here. It wouldn't benefit anyone. No, no. I hear people speak poorly of others all the time, and I do it myself. So I wonder what kind of a world it would be if Colossians 4, 6 were true, where Paul exhorts Christ followers to, this is what he says, always let your speech be gracious, always seasoned with salt, giving people the benefit of the doubt. That doesn't mean shrinking back from hard conversations, but it means making sure that if I'm going to have a hard conversation, I do so with humility, with honesty, with truth-telling, that in this discourse, I, 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 I pause, I breathe, I seek the wisdom path before responding, and it certainly means that I don't take the conversation that I should have with Petra and take that conversation and instead have it with Andrew. This is what James is saying. It's very practical and very hard. Because the reality is, the words that we use, as we saw last week in the, in, the, in the forest fire analogy, the words light the kindling that is in our lives. Our souls are damaged. So think of our souls as kind of this dry wood that's ready to be ignited. And, and so when the flame of hurtful words meets our soul, what's lit on fire is fear, shame, greed, Rage, blame. No. We got to stop this. That's earthly wisdom. Now, in contrast, what is wisdom from above? Well, first of all, I'll note to you that wisdom throughout the scripture, very interestingly, and this is a bit parenthetical, wisdom is, is most fully articulated for us in Proverbs 8, and here, Wisdom is personified as a woman. There are lots of reasons for that, which could be its own sermon, probably will be someday. But I'll just note for now that uh, women have a different kind of wisdom than men. And it's for this reason that uh, educating women is now seen as one of the most significant investments that it's possible to make in the developing world. Because women show up for work more than men do. Women save more of their earnings than men do. Women invest in their children more consistently than men do. Women make wise decisions that are communitarian for the good of the whole more than men do. So so in Proverbs 8, wisdom, a woman, we're told, seek wisdom. Wisdom is priceless, more valuable than silver or gold. So if you turn with me then to, uh, you know, James, or excuse me, to Hebrews, 
uh, I'm going to just, uh, excuse me, Proverbs. <laughs> I'm going to read this, this, path, this wisdom passage a little bit here from uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 8 and what God has to say about wisdom. Wisdom is better than jewels. All desirable things cannot compare with her. Wisdom, I wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And then especially in, in verse 16, by wisdom, princes rule and nobles and all who judge rightly. I love those who love me. Those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, pure gold. My yield better than silver. I walk in righteousness and in the midst of justice. My, my wisdom leads to righteousness. Wisdom leads to healing. Wisdom leads to justice, right? So this is the this is the wisdom from above that James says should be the source of our words. Our words will we're at a crossroads every time we speak. Will it be earthly wisdom or wisdom from above? Every time. So how do we identify the wisdom from above? Well, the true wisdom is identified by the quality of life that it produces. And there are, I'm going to focus on three qualities that are articulated in this passage in James that comes out from this wisdom that is from above. This wisdom is peace-loving, considerate, and submissive. Uh, three things which are the exact opposite of the envious, selfish, ambitious person driven by demonic wisdom. So peace-loving is especially important because it comes at the head of this list of specific values uh, that, that are articulated in, in, in James regarding speech. And the concern for peace is what causes James to write this because they're a divided community, and what's dividing them is their words. So peace-loving means exactly that. Peace-loving is not conflict avoidance. It's, it's not the pursuit of a conflict-free world. It's not kind of stuffing uh, your, your desires. But it, it simply means this, Romans 12, 18. Make every effort, so far as it depends on you, to be at peace with all people. Now, I'll, I'll come back to, to explain what this means in just a moment here. But as we pursue peace, we don't pursue peace ever at the expense of truth, but we know this is peace. We never use truth as a weapon to destroy the other. And I've been guilty of that in my own life, particularly as a pastor sometimes in theological arguments. I remember uh, getting in an argument with a stranger down by the Pike Place Market about uh, whether Christians who are baptized with the Holy Spirit all speak in tongues or only some speak in tongues. I got in this argument with this person who was like a street preacher, and we're arguing, and then a woman sees us, makes a wide berth around us, and I overhear her out of uh, one ear as I'm in the midst of arguing, and she says to her friend, this is why I left the church 10 years ago. Like, no one cares. And here we are arguing on a public street corner. This does not make for peace. So wisdom 
Speech that's born out of wisdom is peace-loving. Second, it's considerate, which means it will always actually listen empathetically with the other. As St. Francis says, Lord, my desire is make me more eager to understand than to be understood. The first thing is this. I need to empathize with you and, and enter into your world so that I really am hearing you, right? Now, uh, I've been married for over 40 years, and I can tell you that in the 40 years, on a fairly regular basis, I have conflict with my wife. I don't think that that's a bad thing. But long ago, we determined that the sign of a successful disagreement in our marriage is this. If at the end, we both feel heard and we both feel honored, then we feel like we're actually more intimate and closer than before we had the argument. But we, both, we must both feel heard and both feel honored. And we don't do this every time by any means, but there have been times when uh, at the end, on the far side of a conflict, we'll look back almost like uh, Pete Carroll would do with the Seahawks on a Monday, like we'll review the film. We'll go back and we'll look at our conflict and we'll say, hey, did you feel heard? Did I feel heard? Did you feel honored? Did I feel honored? Because that's healthy, wise speech from above. Not conflict-free, but considerate, so that both parties feel heard and honored. And the last one is submissive. And again, this doesn't mean submitting to unjust laws or, you know, remaining silent. The word specifically means this. I mean, this particular word in the Greek language means this, a willingness to bend on things that don't matter. A willingness to bend on things that don't matter. This is really actually very, very important. Uh, I was with a, a British friend one time who was visiting Seattle, and he was having a very bad day. He was just having a bad day. He's a generous, kind man, but he was having a bad day, as we all do. And I, I'd taken him out to breakfast, and uh, he ordered tea, of course. And when the waitress brought the tea, uh, the, the tea bag was already in the hot water, and this offended him. And so he said to the waitress, you clearly know nothing about tea. And then he kind of went off and taught her how the British serve tea. And it was the way. I'm going to suggest to you, that's a good example of not submissive. Do you see? In other words, submissive means this, I can bend my will on things that don't matter. And for him, on that day, perhaps because he was having a bad day, he was hungry, I don't know what it was, having tea done properly mattered. But it doesn't really matter. And if I'm not willing to bend on things that don't matter, my speech will not be submissive. And again, speech from above, speech that has its origin from above, peace-loving, considerate, submissive. So now, we move into this. Okay, we've seen, we're, there's a crossroads here. There's 
Earthly wisdom, wisdom from above. How do I know that I'm going to choose wisely? I need to nourish the, the root that is Christ because the root determines the fruits. The root determines the fruits. And so there's earthly roots and there's heavenly roots. Let's look at the earthly roots real quickly. Jealousy and selfish ambition. In other words, what causes my speech to be earthly? Jealousy and selfish ambition. If you go back and look at the first murder in the Bible, the first murder in the Bible had to do with jealousy. Cain uh, killed Abel, and embedded in that is kind of this sense of envy. Oh, God accepted his offering, didn't accept mine. Cain got mad, rose up, killed Abel. And envy then means, look, I want something you have. I envy you. Jealousy, envy, synonymous here. I want your spirituality. I want your reputation. I want your health. I want your net worth. I want your sphere of influence. I want your platform. I want your market share. I want your friends. I want your, experience, your life experiences. I want your place in the organization. And so, uh, you know, pastors often think about the size of their church and it's supremely tempting to envy somebody who seems to have a bigger platform. For athletes and actors, it's about awards. For writers, it's about copies sold. For parents, we may look at other kids, particularly on Instagram, who look, you know, healthy and happy and smart all the time. And whether it's school or grades or awards or whatever it is, there's a, there, we've cr created a paradigm for success and then we're envying those who seem to have more than we do. And so I want what you have, that's envy. That's jealousy. And selfish ambition is the other root of earthly wisdom. Very important because ambition is not declared to be evil here. There's nothing wrong with ambition. The question is not do you have ambition. The question is to what end is your ambition? Are you seeking the common good and the glory of your creator or the good of yourself? When the Tower of Babel was built, literally in Genesis chapter 11, the, 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 the folks gathered around there. They said this, let us build a tower and let us make a name for ourselves. In other words, like I'm building, I'm building a life to what end? For me, so that I'll have a great reputation, so I'll have creature comforts, so I'll have wealth, of money in the bank. If that's your ambition, that's selfish ambition. I mean, we're doing this common compassion thing right now, and if you participate in the common compassion uh, initiative, you will begin to discover that there are huge inequities of wealth, and when you talk to people who are unhoused over and over and over again, you see this. It's not for lack of working. It's, it's, not, it's not for lack of, you know, effort. People are born into circumstances that are impoverishing and 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 deeply troubling. And yes, we all make bad choices, but for some, the bad choices are excessively damning. And so there's this gap. And we who have been uh, successful in life are called to use our success to what end? To serve others of whom much is given, much is required. Selfish ambition says, look what I built. Now it's quote unquote, mine. It's never yours. It's, it's loaned to you to steward so you can bless and serve others. And, and that's, that's why I'm so excited about this initiative. 
and encourage every one of you to prayerfully consider giving because the reason that God has blessed you is this, Ephesians 4, you're blessed to be a blessing. And we can invest in the issue of homelessness that is so evident in our city so that we can help people create an environment that is redemptive and moves the unhoused uh, toward wholeness. When the Tower of Babel was built, let's make a name for ourselves. When King Saul refused to relinquish the throne, selfish ambition. Third John chapter 1, verse 9, Diatrophes is named as the guy who, quote-unquote, loves to be first. Selfish ambition is the person who doesn't listen fully, but is already framing a response before hearing the other. It's the person who considers climate or race or sexual ethics only through the lens of the question, how does this affect me? It's a person who lives for the praise of others and wants everyone to think positively of him or her. But it's all of us when earthly wisdom governs our lives. And, and so we're called to kind of root out this earthly wisdom that stems from jealousy and selfish ambition and instead embrace heavenly roots, wisdom born from humility. And so it's really interesting. In earthly wisdom, like I'm, I've got this sense of existential inadequacy, and so I have ambition to, you know, build my platform, build my market share, build my net worth so that I can fill up this sense of inadequacy. And one approach of countering that earthly wisdom is to simply say this, you're not inadequate. But the gospel doesn't take us down that road. The lie of earthly wisdom is not that you're incomplete. The Bible actually confirms that you're incomplete. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. This is where Paul says, I am not adequate in myself to consider anything as coming from myself. Here's Jesus, John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In fact, the starting point of heavenly wisdom is acknowledging that I'm not enough. I don't have enough to live the life for which I'm created. Apart from Christ, I am incomplete. And I think a crux problem is right here, but this is also the core reason why the gospel is rele relevant. Without Christ, we're forced to move either into depression and shame and anxiety that comes from believing we're inadequate, or we shore ourselves up with selfish ambition to build a house of cards so that we can prove both to ourselves and the world that we are adequate. Look what I built. Look what I made. Look who I am. Neither of those are redemptive. Both lead to what is addressed here, disorder, destruction, every evil thing. Humility says this, I'm loved, I'm gifted, I'm called, and I'm inadequate to live the life for which I'm created without the empowerment of the indwelling Christ. So that creates in me, then, at my best, a posture of continually receiving from Christ. Am I anxious? Christ is my peace. Am I afraid? Christ is my courage. Am I alone? Christ is my companion. Am I empty? Christ is my fullness. Am I being criticized? Christ is my identity. Am I in an argument? Christ is my wisdom. Remember Proverbs 8, 17? Those who diligently seek wisdom will find it, 
But seeking implies this, knowing that I don't have it. So I know I need what I don't have. That's humility. And, and speech that is wise is born from the root of humility. Going back to the picture at the beginning, we come to a crossroads and we, my wife and I have to say, we have a map and we, we're in good health and we have the resources to do this beautiful trip and we don't know where we are. <laughs> That's the humility piece. So then the bicyclist comes along and we say, oh, let's ask, let's get more revelation. We don't have enough, right? So I remember a student in seminary, I'm in this missions class and uh, the, the, the instructor had been a missionary to Africa for 25 years, and he was teaching us about demonic possession. And he talked about coming into a village one time and preaching, and he said there was a guy that was uh, uh, tied to a tree uh, with, a, with a bit of a chain or so, and he said, I began preaching, and this guy started uh, you know, swearing and shouting and cursing. And then he literally broke the chain and he started running at me. And then uh, the, the professor talked about how he cast the demon out of the guy. Now, whatever you think of that, it's not the point of the story in the moment. The point of the story is this. There's a student and he's sitting in the back and as soon as the professor starts telling the story, student does this, folds his arms, shaking his head like this, literally puts his feet up on the desk in front of him. Really rude. And the professor then looks at the guy and he says, I think you have a tr problem with what I'm saying. And then the student says this, yeah, that's because uh, demonic possession and casting on demons, all that stuff, that stopped in 320 AD, when the, uh, the scriptures were determined, when the canon was closed, to use theological language. In other words, this is what he's saying. Miracles don't happen anymore. And I talked to the professor afterwards. He said, you know, just so discouraging when people just won't even receive anything that doesn't fit their already existing paradigm. He says, why is this kid even in seminary if he already knows everything? So I want you to see here that humility means that we approach the world like default at the beginning like this. I don't know everything. And those who live there are more likely to display the things that are spoken of in this passage. Wisdom that is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Humility means I know what I don't know, and therefore I spend time listening before speaking. Charles Eastman is a Native American, and he writes about this very subject when he says, we who are Native American know about silence. We aren't afraid of it. In fact, to us, it is more powerful than words. Our elders were schooled in the ways of silence, and they passed that on to us. This is what they taught us. Watch, listen, then act or speak. This is the way to live. Watch the animals. See how they care for their young. 
Watch the elders. Listen to the elders. Always watch first and listen first with a still heart and then wait. And then when you've watched enough and learned enough and waited enough, then speak. Wow. Reminds me of Isaiah 29. In quietness and confidence is your strength. Big ears, small mouth. James 1, 18 to 20. Quick to hear, slow to anger, slow to speak. And I would just say that, you guys, the conspicuous absence of these traits in our public discourse is nothing new. But it needs to remind us uh, that the words we're hearing from both sides of the aisle politically and from uh, strident fans advocating for both sides of the aisle, none of this is wisdom. Policies matter, yeah. Yes, go ahead and vote. Yes, debate, but make no mistake about it. Jesus' kingdom is, quote-unquote, not of this world. And those who seek his kingdom should remember that real wisdom listens, then kind of waits, and then acts. Which brings me to the close. You must choose wisely. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6? He said, look, uh, the, the debate at the point, in the moment was food. What should we eat? What's clean and unclean? And here's Jesus, Luke 6. Not what you eat that defiles you. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. And then this is what he says. What comes out of your mouth reveals what's in your heart. So Proverbs 4.23, above all things, guard your heart. So that your heart then is filled with this heavenly wisdom. And then you recognize that every, every conversation is a crossroads. An opportunity to allow to come out of my mouth that which is earthly and unnatural or that which is wisdom from above. I, and then I see, oh, I'm at a crossroads. I, when I do sermons, I doodle a little bit. And so you maybe can't see, but I made some mountains here, but I tried to make a road here, a crossroads. And so Proverbs 8 talks about choosing wisdom. And here's what James says. The path of wisdom is without hypocrisy, gentle, pure, peaceable, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruit, unwavering. The path of wisdom from below is filled with jealousy, coveting, selfish ambition, domination systems, disorder, every evil thing. And so we're, we're at this crossroads. Every time there's a conversation, social media response, you see something online and you're tempted. Your cranky uncle who wants to debate something politically. Your neighbor's rant about evangelicals. Your, your child calling your name like Abby talked about last week. Before you respond, stop, inhale, and ask, God, which path do you want me to be on? That's the way of wisdom. Our words matter. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in a world filled with words that are destructive and lighting fires all the time, we can, by the power of your Spirit, offer an alternative. We often don't. I often don't. 
Would you use these words today, Father, to change our habits of speech to that which is uplifting and contributing to life? And we'll thank you as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.